This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll talk about Michael Moore's powerful new movie, Fahrenheit 11.9. It opens tomorrow. We'll talk about it with film critic David Edelstein. But first, Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford. Trump Watch starts right now. Did Trump's Supreme Court nominee try to rape a 15-year-old girl when he was 17 years old, 36 years ago? Is he telling the truth when he says he did not? And how much should it matter now? For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, best known for her award-winning work on Haiti, most recently the book Farewell, Fred Voodoo, Amy Welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, the re- just to remind our listeners about what we're calling the recent allegations of sexual assault against Brett Kavanaugh. She was 15. He was 17. It was at a party uh, in suburban Maryland. He and a male friend pushed her into a room, closed the door. He pushed her onto the bed and climbed on top of her, tried to pull her clothes off. When she tried to scream, he put his hand over her mouth. She said she feared he might kill her inadvertently. The other guy jumped on top of them both. She escaped, locked herself in the bathroom. The uh, Wall Street Journal editorial page has kind of taken the lead in defending Kavanaugh on this. He says it did not happen. The Wall Street Journal says this is simply too distant to warrant a new hearing or to delay a vote. Too distant. Uh, you know, it is hard, hard to remember something that happened last week or last month, um, much less what you did when you were 15 or 17. How much should we trust Christine Blasey Ford's memory from 36 years ago? Well, Christine Blasey Ford has a lot of reason to uh, to go with this story because she uh, remembers it in detail. And this is what happens with traumatic memory. A uh, uh, psychiatrist named Richard Friedman had a New York Times op-ed today on this very subject, uh, why memories of sexual assault stick. They stick because you're afraid for your life. And when that happens, certain endocrine systems kick in and they are they happen to be things that also spark areas of the brain where memory resides. Um, and this is true of uh, people with post-traumatic stress disorder also. That part of their brain has been inflamed by the trauma, and they remember it uh, often and with great um, specificity. So it's not that surprising that something happened then, something that happened then would remain in her mind. In addition, as we all know, the older you get, the more clear your memories of your youth and childhood become, and the less clear your memories of where your iPhone is become. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kavanaugh's defenders have have switched their defense of him. At one point, they were saying boys will be boys. When they're in high school, they get drunk. They try to rape 15-year-old girls. Right, locker room behavior. But they're not saying that anymore. Uh, he is now saying she is lying. It did not happen. It's not that he doesn't remember. It's not that maybe he did this when he was drunk. She is lying. And his defenders say... That means it's just a he said, she said situation. In America, 
You are innocent in pr until you're proven guilty, and she doesn't have any proof. So he should be on the Supreme Court. Uh, what do you say to uh, she doesn't have any proof? Well, I think that, um, first of all, there's the fact that she even came out with this. It's going to ruin her life for the foreseeable future. It's going to be very hard for her. Already, she's been forced to leave her house and go into hiding in the United States of America oh. because of death threats against her, because of her allegations. So that's one reason you might want to begin to believe her. Um, another reason is that although she doesn't have those nice corroborating uh, confessions to best friends that people always cite as part of the evidence that the things really did happen in a he, sh he said, she said event. Um, she did go in 2012, long before Brett Kavanaugh was um, uh, nominated for the Supreme Court, to a therapist in couples therapy with her husband. And that therapist kept notes when uh, Christine Blasey Ford related this story. So there's also that evidence. Uh, plus, there was another pair of eyes at the incident. Now, we don't know what that other pair of eyes is going to say, but that's Mark Judge. Judge can that be his name? Mark, Mark Judge uh, was there, and that was a friend, another 17-year-old, I believe, of Brett Kavanaugh's at the time, uh, who wrote a book called... Wasted Tales of a Gen X Drunk. That is Kavanaugh's character, character witness. Character witness. Great. And in the book, one of my favorite <laughs> facts of this story, he has a, a – Mark Judge has a close companion, a friend named Bart O'Kavanaugh. <laughs> <laughs> Who uh, uh, he recalls going drinking with. Yes. But I believe the – Mark Judge has said different things when asked by reporters about this. He said uh, he doesn't recall it. Then he outright denied it. Um, and then I think he's been waffling ever since. Uh, obviously, he's concerned that he may end up being someone who has to testify. I'd say one other thing about the presumption of innocence in this case. It is true that everybody has a right to be presumed innocent in a criminal trial. Right, but this is not a criminal trial. This is a Senate committee. And nobody has a right to sit on the Supreme Court. Who's been accused of such things <laughs> and who has – we have to wait and see what kind of testimony emerges because now I believe they'll – Christine Blasey has said that she will – Testify before the committee. We should we should say the news at this hour, which can change at any moment. Thursday me. afternoon, the news at this hour is that she has said she will testify if she can be guaranteed her safety and security, but she do won't do it on Monday. Uh, and her lawyers are negotiating with the committee. The committee is now kind of confused and mixed up because the last thing they said was it had to be Monday. It was going to be Monday. She could either show up or not show but up. But she pointed out that that was an arbitrary decision. Why choose Monday? Why not Tuesday? Is there that big a difference? By the way, another question remains. If 36 years ago is too long for a person to remember, where is that exact moment? Republicans are very good at establishing when a child can be aborted and not aborted. So that's a bigger question. When exactly is the date on which you can remember a sexual assault? And when is the date, the year, the amount of time passed at which these 
older white men decide you cannot remember that sexual assault. Possibly it's the year they assaulted you. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly. We are speaking with Amy Willens, of course, about the uh, confirmation hearings of of, uh, Bart O'Kavanaugh. Unfair. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, The other thing Republicans are asking is, why did she wait so long? Why did, did Dianne Feinstein wait so long? They waited until the confirmation hearings were over till the moment when the committee was going to vote, which was actually originally scheduled for today, Thursday. Uh, Doesn't this show the whole thing is politically motivated attempt just to screw this up? So why did Dianne Feinstein wait so long? Well, I think it's a very good question. Um, It's called 11th hour, right? The very Mm -hmm. last minute. And um, you can't help but seeing a political motivation in it. But let's move on, as the New York Times (laughs) said. Of course, there's a political motivation. There was a political motivation when the Republicans refused to even speak to Merrick Garland, President Obama. He was the president, his uh, nominee for the Supreme Court. So these things become political. Yeah. The reason the Republican members of the committee are even moving to have this woman speak to the committee is political because they fear the women's vote in the upcoming midterm elections. If they weren't scared of women right now and women's votes, they wouldn't even hear her. You can see it in their faces. You can see it when they say, you know, oh, we would like to hear the lady speak. Uh, Senator Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham said, this has been a drive-by shooting when it comes to Kavanaugh. That's the charges of the sexual assault. I'll listen to the lady, but we're going to bring this to a close. I'll listen to the lady, but... What sheer arrogance. And uh, Orrin Hatch said, this woman, whoever she is, is mixed up. Uh, I guess he doesn't exactly have an open mind. But still, I want to restate the question. Why did it take them so long to bring this up? Well, arguably, the reason it took so long was because uh, Christine Blakely Ford did not want to be identified for all the reasons we see now, uh, all the problems being heaped on her because of this uh, allegation. So if I may just quote her, she said, She didn't want to come forward publicly because of, quote, my anguish and terror about retaliation, close quote. Which has been proven true. And so when she um, gave this information to the committee, first she gave it to the Washington Post anonymously and then to the committee, the Democrats on the committee anonymously, not with her name, but asking for anonymity. She told them exactly that, anguish and fear. And uh, they didn't want to come forward. I think that waiting till the very last minute is probably uh, politically motivated. But eventually, um, people were leaking, and uh, it was going to come out anyway. So she came forward. So Diane Feinstein was respecting her request right. to stay anonymous, and the Washington Post uh, uh, respected her request. But as you say, it leaked. Reporters were camping out in her front yard. This it got out as things do. And also, I think that uh, Ms. Blasey Ford said to herself, okay, I've gone this far, and I'm speculating here, I've gone this far, but this is going to be, it's not going to matter if I don't identify myself. And so she was willing to take that risk uh, on behalf of women who've suffered through this, I would would guess. And... and, uh I'm sure she's also thinking about the fate of Anita Hill, Anita Hill, whose testimony did not matter. 
But uh, even though there was an FBI investigation, three a three day FBI yeah. investigation. Uh, but you remember what David Brock called Anita Hill? He <clears throat> David Brock wrote in the American Spectator, his Republican, prominent Republican uh, thinker. He said <laughs> Anita Hill was quote a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty. Close quote. Nice. Kind of a unforgettable quote. And it's a it, little like Senator Hatch's comment. Uh, yeah. She's nuts. Yeah. And uh, then there's the experience of uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny uh, is her name, was uh, called Anita Hill and said that Anita Hill should apologize 19 years after his confirmation hearing. So this is this is what Christine Blasey Ford can look forward to. Memories can be long. <laughs> We've yeah. On both sides. On, both, on sides. both sides. And I think also that she must have felt, as, as many people watching this unfurl feel, that she doesn't want a man who could do that to her to be in charge yeah. of what happens to women's bodies when he has a position of such authority on the Supreme Court. So, as we said, right now, it seems like she will all probably testify next week, probably not on Monday. Um, there still is a possibility the Republicans could just force this through and refuse to listen to her, but uh, that doesn't... That seems like it would be very a very ugly scene for uh, women voters, including Republican women voters. Yeah. It's not just about Democrats. So let's imagine what will happen when Christine Blasey Ford appears before the Senate Judiciary Committee. The Republicans will be on the attack trying to undermine her story. And, and discredit it. And discredit it. They are... All white men, all the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary, Commi Senate Judiciary Committee are white men. They're going to have to walk a very fine line. Chuck Grassley, Orrin Hatch, Ted Cruz, some of our favorite people. Really? The committee Democrats, on the other hand, include Kamala Harris, Maisie Hirono, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, and of course, Dianne Feinstein, kind of the rainbow that's the Democratic Party these days. How are the Republicans going to look? How are they going to look to women voters 60 days before the midterm elections? They're going to have to be very, very, very careful. And it's going to be um, interesting to watch, to put it mildly, uh, because they will want to <clears throat> seem as though they care mm -hmm. while discrediting <laughs> her story entirely. But they're not going to be able to go the usual route. Uh, what were you wearing? You know, how did you get into that room? Why were you at that party? I don't think they're going to they're going to say things probably like, isn't it true that you don't know what house this took place at? Isn't it true you don't know how you got there? Isn't it true you don't know how you left? Um, so how can we credit the middle part of your story when you have no idea even where and how? Just coming into the studio uh, a few moments ago, I heard a report that the Republicans on the committee preoccupied with how this is going to look, just what we're talking about now, are thinking of having a – that the men will not uh, interrogate Christine Blasey Ford. They will get a – a woman staff member or something like the that. They'll hire an actress. <laughs> That's what we would do in L.A. <laughs> to ask her questions. So, or a woman, you know, prosecutor or something like that to be a, a temporary committee uh, staff member. You can understand why they might uh, want to do that. Uh, um, I just wanted to <clears throat> yes. uh, 
alert listeners, if they don't know already, um, of a speech that I think is very telling that, that Brett Kavanaugh gave at Columbus Law School in the Catholic University in Washington at the 2015 graduation. So that's three years ago. Um, and uh, he was talking and talking, and he spoke about three Georgetown prep friends who'd gone to Columbus uh, Law School. They were uh, friends of his, uh, lawyers like he, and they went to Georgetown Prep, which was his high school, and he's giving this graduation speech, and he sort of in an aside, but obviously part of the speech said, well, we all know what happens at Georgetown Prep stays at Georgetown Prep. Uh And then he added, looking down very cute and sweet, he said, that's been a good thing for all of us, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Kind of, kind of strange in the light of what's happening now. And I read that he, you know, when you apply for one of these jobs, you have to submit voluminous documentation on every single thing you've done uh, in your life that's documentable, and that there's a transcript of this uh, speech, and that when he submitted his materials to the committee, he he deleted, he omitted that sentence, those two sentences. Hmm. Uh, we uh, have <clears throat> just heard that we're going to be speaking with Michael Moore later in the hour about his new film Fahrenheit uh, 11.9. That's an interesting. That's we're excited to be able to uh, have to m- welcome Michael Moore in uh, 20 minutes. Um, getting back to to the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Um, Trump, I don't think, is so what's going to happen? Let's look at the politics of all this. Trump is certainly not going to abandon Kavanaugh of his own accord, even though he's putting a little bit of distance between A little bit them. of air. He is saying it's up to Kavanaugh to show us uh, what, what happened. Right, but he has, said, he has said, personally, it's very hard for me to imagine anything happened. But my response to that is, no, it's not. It's very easy for you in particular to imagine something happen. We have seen a little bit about Trump's history. So. Uh, but um, Trump uh, you know, tends to see things as short-term, zero-sum affairs. He wants to win. This would be a loss if Kavanaugh has to uh, withdraw, uh, especially since this is a sex assault allegation, which has a lot of implications for Donald Trump's own fitness for office. A lot of reverberations around that. But also, he feels very good when he appoints someone who looks like that person should be in that job, which Brett Kavanaugh definitely looks like a Supreme Court justice to someone who's lived through a Supreme Court that was largely men for so long. Um, So he feels like he presented the Senate with a fabulous candidate and what is happening now, and he must be uh, actually stewing very much over this thing. So it seems to me uh, Trump isn't going to be the one to tell Kavanaugh he's finished. Um, I, I think uh, Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, is an extremely important person here. She has said uh, if he is lying, that's disqualifying. Right. And it really comes down, again, to cover up more than it comes down to the facts of the case. If, of course, it depends largely on whether this happened. But if it happened or if it can be seen to be largely believable that this happened, then the fact that he said it didn't happen, that's the cover-up. And that's the thing that Susan Collins is speaking about. So uh, 
Susan Collins, uh, if she says she will vote for Kavanaugh, despite the charges against him, seems to me he's in, then all the Republicans will follow her lead and probably the three Democrats uh, who, who uh, have supported uh, Trump's nominees uh, for the court in the past will join in too. Uh, if Susan Collins says he is unacceptable, I imagine Lisa Murkowski will say no. Uh, and uh, maybe maybe one of the Republicans who's leaving the Senate will join them. They have seemed to be inclined in that direction. So it seems to me uh, if Susan Collins Susan Collins is the most important person, person in, in America a, today. In America. Exactly. Yay. Uh, and she's a woman, at least. Uh, yeah. And but we don't know which way she's going to go. Um, she hasn't believed uh, that that uh, Kavanaugh will roll back Roe versus Wade. And um, whereas a lot of us think that, I think. Um, and uh, she hasn't really put a huge amount of air between her and him yet, except for saying if the thing is true, she won't support him. Which Correct. is crucial. Correct. And then that, you know, I think another thing to think about is what is Trump going to throw at us when Kavanaugh is not pushed forward, if that should happen? Excellent question. The next candidate, there's one named Amy, I believe. I know. <laughs> I'm honored. Amy Barrett. Amy Barrett. And she seems to be probably worse than Kavanaugh. I think she's politically worse than Kavanaugh. So it's a little bit like the if you dump Trump, you get Pence. <laughs> you know, it's a little the same scenario. They're protected by the next in line. And uh, and it would be seems to me that smart thing for the Republicans to do would be dump Kavanaugh, nominate Amy. What's her name? Barrett. Barrett. They'll have a woman candidate, which will help them a lot. It will show they they listen to the woman. They care about women. Uh, I, I don't quite understand why they're not doing that already. That they would... may be doing it already. Well, so far. Don't you think that they're, they don't want to, I'm not sure Amy Barrett could be confirmed before the midterms. That is the big question. That's the Republicans' biggest worry. You have put your finger on it. The calendar is the key to the whole thing. Right. They are worried that if, if Kavanaugh goes down, FBI investigations of new nominees take at least two months. Two and then the election will have happened and the uh, the um, composition of the legislature may have changed. Obviously, they believe it will have changed. And, and they are worried sick about this and therefore... And then no Amy Barrett either. No Amy Barrett. If the Democrats win the seats they are hoping to win in the Senate... Uh, then they could block all of Trump's Supreme Court and nominees if, if Trump, for the next two if years. If Trump loses this, it's a gigantic loss for Trump because yeah. the people who back Trump and who love Trump have many motivations for wanting their own Supreme Court. Financial reasons for wanting the court to be on the conservative side. Uh, electoral reasons for wanting the uh, court to continue disenfranchising the American people. Um, there's a huge uh, interest group that wants Brett Kavanaugh. And if they can't have Brett Kavanaugh, they want Amy Barrett. And if Trump loses this, he's going to have lost just an enormous amount of credibility with his backers. Amy Willens, uh, longtime contrib contributing editor at The Nation. Amy, 
This story is changing every hour, but we appreciate your work up to this hour. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks a lot, John. I'm John Wiener, uh, live in L.A. on 90.7 point KPFK. This is Trump Watch. Stay tuned for more in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about Michael Moore's new film, Fahrenheit 11.9. It opens tomorrow, Friday. It's a passionate warning against Trump and a call to arms. For comment, we turn to David Edelstein. He's a film critic for New York Magazine and film critic for Fresh Air with Terry Gross. He's also written about movies for The Village Voice, Rolling Stone, and The New York Times. He started out in the glory days at the Boston Phoenix. David Edelstein, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Well, there are a lot of different parts of Michael Moore's new film. It's about the water in Flint and the teacher strike in West Virginia and the school shootings in Parkland, Florida, and, and of course, the election of Donald Trump. Are there too many different things to hang together in a single documentary? I think that it's disjunctive, although to give uh, more credit, he... Uh you know, he, he does these sort of fake transitions that, that at least don't sort of rupture the surface of the film, but it, it really is a much more complicated uh, and interesting film than it first appears. If you look at the, the ads online and in the newspaper, if you still, I hope, get a newspaper, uh, <laughs> you'll see a picture of Trump golfing, you'll see it calls him a misogynist, a racist. You think that basically it's, it's a film about Trump. It's not really a film about about Trump uh, entirely. It is a uh, it's a um, it's a film about systemic failure, of which Trump is one and a most extreme symptom, and about the very slow uh, transition that Moore believes we are making right now to uh, I'll be blunt about it a fascist dictatorship potentially on par with Nazi Germany. Now, I know that sounds crazy and alarmist and like it belongs with the conspiracy theorists, but I have to say that Trump, uh, uh, you know, has the language down pat of uh, a lot of what was happening post-Weimar and uh, pre-Reichstag fire uh, in, the, in, the, the, uh, in the early days of Nazi Germany. I'm, he, Moore is not saying that this will evolve into uh, Nazi Germany necessarily with concentration camps, but he's saying that this is how fascism comes. It can happen here. It is already happening here. And he really hopes that he doesn't look back to, say, this midterm election as the point where we could have done something and we didn't. And and let me add that um, Michael Moore does not do this in <clears throat> just by himself warning us about the Hitler uh, uh, analogies. He interviews two prominent and distinguished historians, Timothy Snyder and NYU history professor Ruth Ben-Giat. Giat. 
Uh, and their point is seems to be mostly that Trump's uh, methods and Trump's rhetoric uh, have many similarities to Hitler's methods and Hitler's rhetoric. They don't look at kind of the larger institutional setting of, uh, you know, we have a federal system. California is the biggest state. California is 100% controlled by Democrats. California is the fifth biggest economy in the world. It's never going to, you know, be part of Trump's America. That's kind of not the level at which uh, they make the Hitler analogy. It's more at the rhetorical and, and, uh, and tactical level. And that seems pretty legitimate, I have to say. Yeah, and and there's a reminder that that Hitler began with a very small but very angry and violent minority, which we I think we can we can say we have here. I mean, there is uh, anywhere from twenty to thirty three percent of the populace that ha- holds extreme views of of liberals who've actually said they'd rather be Russian than a liberal, um, and. Uh, and and also, uh, you know, a, a reliance on um, a constitution that um, that more believes is genuinely imperiled. Um, and and the Germans had a constitution too. They had a uh, they had something of a liberal democracy, which uh, Hitler promptly dissolved, citing a national emergency, which which actually seems to be trumped up. No pun intended, or perhaps <laughs> pun intended. Um, and uh, and a Reichstag fire and the appointment of non-party journalists who then were um, the appointment of uh, of of you know friendly friendly legislatures and then the identification of the press as as enemies of the people and a slow purge of uh, of alternate voices. Now, there's no question Trump wants to do this. He yeah. said in his tweets that he wants to do it. I mean, he's, he, it's as naked as you can get. The question is, Moore thinks it will be easier for him to do some of these things with the Supreme Court in his pocket, with, you know, the voting irregularities, and then we think it will be. And he points a lot of fingers at the Democratic Party, and not so much the so-called progressive wing, but I guess what we would say is maybe the neoliberal wing that yeah. I think is embodied by um, Bill Clinton uh, and Hillary Clinton. And uh, I was surprised to see Barack Obama, who really comes in for a great deal of ridicule in the film. Um, more, I guess maybe the side of, um, I don't know the makeup of your listenership, but I do know that there is a, a branch of, of the left. I mean, people like Glenn Greenwald, who, uh, who might have been militantly anti-George W. Bush and anti, you know, the, the ridiculous and obscene Iraq war, but who have turned out to be surprisingly soft on Vladimir Putin and appointed to failures in neoliberalism and continuing, uh, you know, efforts of the United States to undermine foreign governments. Uh, he accuses us of being being hypocrites, um, a, a weakening of uh, financial regulations, and uh, uh, and that began under Clinton and and. You know, stiffing up of uh, of uh, penalties and and incarcerations and and plenty of atrocities done at the border, um, supposedly by by Barack Obama. Um, 
that is at least comparable to to what Trump is doing now. He's saying it began under under Barack Obama. Yes. So there is uh, Michael Morris is saying that, and I think Glenn Greenwald and others have been saying that. There, the surprise to everybody about the film, the one thing that I think will stun a lot of people, um, is that uh, Vladimir Putin is barely mentioned. Correct. Um, and Robert Mueller is very barely mentioned. Um, the, the, what comes in for the strongest ridicule is hope, hope and change, those ideas that uh, somehow or other, uh, that, that the, the boogeyman is Putin and that Robert Mueller is going to come along and rescue us and that Trump will be indicted and either removed from office or rendered ineffectual by the legislature. He does not count on that happening, and he does not have any faith in Democrats to... Uh, you know, to fight uh, on our behalf, um, even if such a thing does happen. So um, he is really looking to promote grassroots activism and certain progressive candidates that are springing up all over the country. And that's why he studies movements in whistleblowers, ordinary so-called people in, you know, places like Flint, Michigan, and in Parkland, and in West Virginia, where the teacher strike empowered, you know, spread across the whole state and has fortunately spread to other states now and looks to be having some impact, although there's only so far you can go with these state legislatures. So that's, that's the thrust, that's the focus of the film. Um, and it's a surprise. It starts out very funny because he takes the usual cheap shots at, uh, at Donald Trump, which, uh, though cheap, are, you know, 100% true yes. and uh, amazing, and you will laugh your asses off, you know, in the first 15... Well, you'll cringe as we relive that night, that horrible night, when, when you know, all those parties gathered for Hillary Clinton and, to, you know, to watch the returns and saw it slip away. Um, uh, but there's a, there's a lot of very funny material, and then all of a sudden we're in Flint. And, you know, 10,000 kids being poisoned, some of them with permanent brain damage from the lead levels in the water. That ain't so funny. And Parkland ain't so funny. And, um, and there are long periods where Trump goes unmentioned. And he's really looking at the failure of legislatures and of governors, um, Republican governors generally, but Democrats are not let off the hook, um, to turn their backs on, on these atrocities. There's a section in which he, he accompanies the Parkland kids to uh, Tallahassee, to the, to the state government, and it's just laughable when you see, when you see these legislators squirm uh, in the face of these earnest, but I must say uh, rather impish <laughs> and challenging kids. Um, they know what they're seeing and hearing. Um, they're smarter than the legislators legislators, many of whom are in the NRA's pocket that they, that they talk to. Uh, I think it's a very, very good film. David Edelstein, we've only got about two minutes left here. In, uh, in New York Magazine, you call this Michael Moore's fullest and most original film. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us why you, why you think that. Well, I think it's most original because I think the other films, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm ambivalent about some of those films. The most entertaining was his first, Roger and Me, and we learned that he played fast and loose with a lot of facts. 
uh, in that film. I mean, that film was really journalistically discredited. And Sicko, as great a movie as it is in certain ways, also goes way too easy on the Castro regime in Cuba. And uh, uh, that's just, you have to correct for Michael Moore's biases, and you have to correct for the fact that he's something of a blowhard. I said in the piece, the, the, the wind blows hard in the right direction, though. <laughs> um, I, think it's his, I think it's his most original, because to yoke these things together, to not go after the low-hanging fruit uh, in terms of, of Trump's relationship with Putin, uh, to bring all these things together to, to do a systemic critique that also includes the Democrats and ruffles a lot of our feathers um, uh, and makes us rethink, uh, you know, the, uh, the honesty of, of our party. To be able to do that in under two hours and uh, rivet us the whole time, I, I think, is, is, a, is a great feat. And I think you can argue with the film, but I think you must see it. He, I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't know if people know my work, but, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I may be an idiot, but I'm not a shill. I don't write <laughs> lines like, I don't write lines like, you know, this is one of the most urgent films ever made so that I'll get in the ads. It's nice to see my name in the ads, hey. But I don't, because I, it doesn't happen that often, I don't write hyperbolically like that. And I, I really want people to see this movie. Uh, Michael Moore does. I'm happy that we, we agree on that. Um, you've seen it? Uh, yeah, I, I, I saw it. And uh, as a matter of fact, we have Michael Moore on the line now. Oh, no. Okay. So, right. so, well. so uh, our time is up. Okay. Uh, David right. Edelstein, he's not a shell. Uh, read him at, <laughs> at the New York Magazine website. David, thanks so much for Thank talking you. with us All today. Right. Bye. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK. Michael Moore, next stop when our program continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about Michael Moore's new film, Fahrenheit 11.9. It opens tomorrow everywhere, and it's a passionate warning against Trump and a call to arms. Now it is an honor and a pleasure to say, Michael Moore, welcome to the program. John, uh, thank you for having me on. You know, I remember months before Election Day, you went on Bill Maher's show and you said Trump was going to carry Michigan and Wisconsin. And Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania. I thought he is just trying to get people mobilized to work in this election. These are blue states. This is not going to happen. And then on election night, when they announced that Trump had carried Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, the first thing I thought of was, Michael Moore knew something that the pollsters and the Hillary campaign and all the networks did not know. In, in, the, in the movie, you don't show that clip. You barely mention your prediction. You leave, it to, you leave it to Fox News to mention that prediction. Very modest on your part, but what was it that you knew? Well, I live in Michigan. I don't live in the bubble of uh, New York or, or Los Angeles. I didn't grow up in a city where the media 
I'm referring to New York, treated Donald Trump either as a joke or tabloid fodder, where they gave him an affectionate nickname many, many years ago, the Donald. Yeah. So they didn't do their job. And he got to continue breaking the law, uh, discriminating uh, against black families in, the, uh, in his housing units, treating women the way he treated them, go down the whole list. So I'm not of that world. And I come, I come from out in that flyover place. And I also, I also had the benefit of not really going to college. Um, I think <laughs> oh, now, as I've, <laughs> as I've gotten older, I've seen how that, <laughs> I used to feel really bad and ashamed about it that I only lasted a year at, at a uh, commuter campus at one building. The whole college was in one building in Flint. And I used to feel bad about that, um, mainly because I missed, I think, reading some of the great works that I eventually read, but uh, I didn't read them when I was 18 or 19. But I realize now that I, I wasn't, I somehow, I fell off the rails somewhere and, and I wasn't conditioned to think of things a certain way, read things a certain way. And, and even, and I'm talking about, you know, people who are on the left, liberals, you know, there's a big difference between growing up in Flint and growing up in Ann Arbor. And had I grown up just 60 miles to the south of Flint, um, I maybe would have seen things in an entirely different way, or in this case, not seen it yeah. coming. But but I live but I live in that other world. I live in a world where I watched The Apprentice. If we were if we were able to ask everybody listening to this right now, how many of you watch The Apprentice every week when Donald Trump was the host? I'm, I'm guessing not many. I didn't. No, no, of course, of course you didn't. You probably went to college. Yeah. And you, you probably, you probably lived a life where you were introduced to culture. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you're an enlightened, educated person. And so you don't waste your time with crap like that. Oh, shucks. That's good. That's a good, that's a good, that's a, and that's a compliment. But I wasn't, but. I didn't grow up that way. I wasn't raised that way. So I, I watch crap. Like you know, The Apprentice and and The Bachelorette and stuff like that. So I I I watch what what I can say I guess sadly what the majority of my fellow Americans also watch. But here was the here was the beauty and the genius of The Apprentice, and I think this will help answer that question as to how did I know? Because I'm I'm not Cassandra, I'm not Karnak, you know, the Magnificent. Uh, I I. I, I, I I, I am not going to make other predictions on this show with you. I just live, I live, I live in that other America. And, and what's so, what was so great about The Apprentice every week is that Trump, who, um, you know, that whole set was a total, uh, you know, it's a set. It was a creation. It was yeah. you the impression that this was, this was Trump, Trump Tower and this is how he did things. And uh, I, I know people who worked on the show, they had their, it took them literally, you know, days and weeks to get him to say his lines right. Just a simple line, you're fired. Mm. Because, because think about this. He's never fired anybody. He's never said, you're fired. <laughs> because he's Donald Trump. He has some other henchmen That's right. do that job. He has Don Jr. or Eric do that job. He has never done that. In the same way, when after he said what he said on the Billy Bush bus, he then went to get off the bus to meet the pretty woman that was standing out there. He mm -hmm. was just 
took the, he was taking his tic tacs uh, for. Yeah. And if you go back and you watch that tape, he takes the two steps down to the bus door. He's inside the bus, right? And he doesn't know how to get out. And so he thinks the way out is to knock on the door. He knocks <laughs> on the bus door as if that will make it open. And I looked at that and I thought, this guy's never ridden a bus. <laughs> I think you're he doesn't, he doesn't, know, actually, doesn't literally know how to get off a bus. And, it, and it's like, so, so, here's the, so, so he's never fired anybody. They had to work with him. He had to get, you know, addiction people and, you know, uh, acting uh, coaches to get him to say, you're, you're fired. But let me tell you, the genius of the show, once they got it together and once they got him playing his role, is that each week he would fire uh, the jerk uh, on the show. Yes. And America would watch that and they would go, I know that jerk. He's in the next cubicle. Mm. I know that jerk. You know, he works on the line with me here. Mm -hmm. Everybody has that jerk or that D-bag at work. And there was something cathartic about watching Trump go, you're fired. (laughs) And it was like, yeah, because everybody wants to do that at work to that to that a-hole who is sitting next to them or on the other side of the room. So anyway, so so the show had a real catharsis with the American public in the first season, the final episode, I think uh, 44 million people watched uh, just to get an idea of that. Like last month, I, I looked this up. The, the highest rated show that week was the big bang theory on CBS. It's a sitcom and it had like 16, 17 million viewers. Trump had 44 million wow. in that first year and he became a beloved figure. And this is something that the Democrats, the Clinton campaign, and, you know, fellow liberals and lefties, because they didn't watch the show, didn't know, didn't understand. And and I knew right away when he announced, I thought, wow. And I didn't know the, the real impetus of why he was announcing, which I described in the film, because he found out uh, that NBC was paying a woman on another show more than him, Gwen Stefani, who was one of the stars of The Voice, another reality show and he's a reality show and he's like what mm-hmm. not only somebody making more than him but a woman a woman outrageous making more than me outrageous, outrageous. <laughs> listen i need and to so he, let me ask yeah, i, I want to talk ahead, about the film at the beginning starts out on election night donald trump wins you ask the question how the f did this happen and the genius of the film in my opinion is that a documentary about Trump centers on Flint, and Trump really isn't the cause of Flint's troubles at all and had almost nothing to do with Flint. The real turning point of the film for me was Obama going to Flint and Obama asking to drink the water there. That is just a terrible moment that explains so much about how the F Trump got elected. Let's talk about that for a minute. Well, it's the mo- it was the most painful part of the film for me personally. Yeah, I love uh, President Obama. I voted for him twice. You know, so far t- to this point in my life, he's the best president you know that we've had. And 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 for those of you who are saying no, it was Jimmy Carter. You didn't live during <laughs> Jimmy Carter. He was a very conservative Democrat. He's become a saint now. So yeah. I'll, I'll give him his due for that. But 
Jimmy Carter as president, um, not so much. But look, in the making of this film, I realized that, you know, as awful as, as Trump is, the day before Trump became president wasn't really a great day either for this country. The tens of millions of people that we have living in poverty, the tens of millions of people who are functionally illiterate because of the conditions of our schools, you know, all of our issues in terms of uh, immigration and climate change, get on the whole list. We weren't in very good shape to begin with. Uh, he, of course, obviously uh, exacerbated it and made it much worse. And um, but but to just think that it's just Trump or that he somehow fell out of the sky, that's not what happened. And and I thought I started just thinking about how how did we help to create Trump? Were we uh, were we uh, were we an unwitting Dr. Frankenstein? We collectively. Uh, you know, in, in terms of the American people, because because the Democratic Party, in ways that I'm sure that they regret, I hope they regret, or they didn't know that they were doing it at the time, but they were helping to pave the way for him. Yes, yeah, so I show in the film, just to give you an idea, we all know that, that more people vote in the general election than in the primary. Okay? Everybody agrees with that. I think we know the data on that is right. correct. In the Democratic primary in Flint uh, in 2016, had a turnout much larger than the general a few months later in November. And nobody has bothered to look at that or ask why. And so I did, and I do in this film. And the reason isn't uh, because people, you know, just decided, well, there was no difference between Trump and Hillary. Nobody took that position. It was because the Democrats actively depressed the vote. First, when Hillary took the questions, she, they gave her the questions in advance in the Flint debate, the debate between her and Bernie on that stage in Flint. And when that was revealed a month or two later and the people of Flint, the mothers of the poison kids who had stood at the microphone, they asked a question that they thought that, number one, they had made up their own question, and she was hearing it for the first time when that wasn't the truth. And when they found out that it was rigged, the people, many people in Flint, and certainly the people that were there at the debate, felt used as props mm -hmm. by the Hillary campaign and by the Democratic Party. But the poisoning had already been going on at that point for two years. And before the debate, uh, President Obama um, had already started this using Flint as target practice and sending in the military to bomb buildings, to fire rocket-propelled uh, uh, grenades and missiles, and to blow up abandoned buildings, did not warn any of the neighbors in the neighborhoods. And people thought there was we were under some sort of terrorist attack, but it was just the U.S. military planning for future urban wars. Not urban wars, I'm sure, overseas, but urban wars here. And it was a pretty scary proposition. Nobody in the media covered it. Nobody would listen to anybody who was trying to tell them that this was going on. And and people who were liberals also didn't really want to hear it. And it gets when you see this movie in the theater, it gets very quiet because you don't want to think that this beloved president of ours would oversee or even know or approve of the Pentagon for 10 days sending in the army to Flint to help blow it up. And it, it really, it depressed the vote 
And after that, after that, and then the Hillary, the rigging of the debate. And then finally, at, one month after the debate, President Obama comes and drinks the water and says the water's fine when it wasn't fine and everybody knew it was still poison and nobody could understand why he would do this. And it was like a knife in the heart to the people of Flint. But let me tell you something. It's not just Flint. It's all over this country where, where people feel that the party of the people had let them down. And in the movie, I, this is a painful thing to have to watch, but look, we're not going to get this. We're not going to fix this problem if we don't own up to our own mistakes. And, and I tell you, the balancing act that I'm having to do here, just in talking to you, I'm listening to myself talk to you about this, and I'm thinking, I need everybody to go out and vote on November 6th for whoever the Democrat is on the ballot. Like, it's that serious right now. We're, we're that close to the, to the edge of the cliff with Trump and our democracy. Everybody, everybody has to vote. Everybody has to bring five to ten people with them to the polls. We need a tsunami of voters, and they've got to vote for a Democrat. And the good news is, with that, is that we have so many good progressive Democrats on the ballot. There are so many women on the ballot in November, so many young people, so many Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes on the ballot yes. all across the country. And, and you need to look up and see who's running in, in your district, and you're going to be surprised at how much better that Democratic candidate is on the ballot this November than the typical old party hacks that have been in the ballot in the past. And, and, and so I am both telling people that we have to do this differently if we are successful in get, getting rid of Trump. We have to approach this far differently than we ever have in the past. And we can no longer vote for people that uh, call themselves Democrats when, when, as I show in the film, Bill Clinton, everything from NAFTA uh, to his defense of Mary Jack making it illegal to marry somebody that you love, uh, to mass incarceration of black people through drug laws, all those things that began with a Democrat and um, really weren't upended when another Democrat came into office in, in 2009. So let's all make that commitment, not let this happen again. Michael, I'm sorry we're out of time. Michael Moore's new film, Fahrenheit 11.9, opens tomorrow. It's a passionate warning against Trump and a call to arms. you got to see this movie. Michael Moore, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Thanks for the good work that you do. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Thanks to Amy Wolens. Thanks to, da to David Edelstein. Thanks to Gary Baca and Renee Reynolds. Stay tuned for Jerry Quickly coming up next. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.